I want to lead us in prayer now as we come into a new study in God's Word, a whole new series that we're opening today, and I'll introduce it in just a moment. But Father, first, we just want to plead for your mercy and grace. In the midst of our studies, uh, we are but human. We're looking at your divine book. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to lead us into the truth that we need to know. Would you grow us further? Would you mature us more in Christ as we open your book today and we hear what you have to say about this issue? Thank you in advance for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. Jack Canfield and uh, Mark Hansen have written a series of books called Chicken Soup for the Soul. Probably several of you in the room have seen that or heard part of them or read parts of them. And there's been controversy over it and all of that. But these are stories that nurture human soul, kind of encourage you along. There's one cute one that uh, I think it was in the original Chicken Soup book, Chicken Soup for the Soul book, where the, this little boy's in grade school, he's in art class, and he's drawing some picture there, you know, his tongue is out, he's really getting into it, and uh, he's doing his best, and the teacher walks by, and she says, oh, that's very, what, what are you drawing there? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. Teacher said, oh, okay, well, that's interesting because none of us really know what God looks like. How do you know what to draw? He said, don't worry, when I'm done, they'll know what God looks like. I thought about passing out crayons and uh, pieces of paper to each of you coming into the auditorium today and giving you a shot at drawing your own picture of what God is. Now, some of you would undoubtedly go to something like a cross or a heart, you know, some symbol that obviously references the Christian faith and love in Christ. Some of you, like me, would use your coping mechanisms because you can't draw worth beans, and you would just leave the piece of paper blank saying, see, God's a spirit, you know, kind of get by the problem because you can't draw anyhow. I guess we all have our ideas about what God is like, don't we? And I guess that's really part of what concerns me here. Some people really have no legitimate idea of what God is like, but they have their idea of who God is. It's almost as though we have created God in our image. The image that we would like him to be. There's distorted views of God. Uh, Certainly we hear the stories of the big guy upstairs, my buddy, Sometimes we think of him as a harsh, a mean, a judgmental God. Some see him as being very disconnected or uninvolved in our lives. Perhaps we are a little bit experiencing what the four blind men experienced when they were asked to describe an elephant. And because they were blind and couldn't see the elephant, they were allowed to touch an elephant. And then from their touching of the elephant, They could describe the elephant. So the first man touched the elephant. He touched the elephant's trunk and determined that the the, uh, elephant is really like a very large snake. Another blind man touched uh, the ear of the elephant and concluded that an elephant is very much like a very large leaf from a tree, a large tree. Third man touched the leg of the elephant and determined that an elephant is really like the trunk of a tree. And a fourth man touched the tail and determined that an elephant was like a short rope. 
I suppose you could say in some strange way each of the four men were right, at least in part. The problem is, none of them had a comprehensive idea of really what an elephant was. In the culture in which we live today, people think they have their idea of what God is like because they've run into him by touching a leg, or they've touched a tail, or an ear, or a trunk, or whatever, and they have their concept, but their concept is woefully inadequate of who God really is. This becomes difficult because people's ideas of God conflict. Today we're starting a new series. Who is this God we serve? Who is he? What is he really like? In this series, it is our desire that we get to know him far more deeply than we currently do. And notions that were incorrect get corrected. And notions that were correct get underscored. We're going to get to know him not on the basis of our personal experiences bumping into a leg or touching an ear or a tail. We're going to actually look at the book that he gave us to reveal himself to us. His Bible. Join me in this search for who is this God that we serve. It is my heartfelt desire that we cultivate a healthy, biblically-based concept of who our God is, at least as much as we can humanly understand. In the next several weeks as we do this, what could change as a result of this study? What could change in your spiritual life? Perhaps as you get to know him better, you can trust him more deeply. Your relationship with him will, will improve. Any relationship improves as trust grows. Perhaps you will become a little more comfortable with him, at least at some levels, afraid at some levels, the terror of God, and yet more comfortable so you can crawl up in his lap uh, like Abba, Daddy, Father. Kind of a relationship. Perhaps your respect and reverence of him will grow deeper than ever before, and your worship will not simply be the singing of enjoyable songs. It will go much deeper and much more heartfelt. And yes, perhaps this study will result in deeper obedience because when you know the God of the Bible, you can't help but love him. And Jesus said, if you really love me, you'll do what I say. Perhaps it will result in greater obedience in our lives to God. Wouldn't that be great? We've spent time in the last couple of years studying the Holy Spirit and studying the second member of the Trinity, Jesus. Now we're going to the, primary, the, the first member, God the Father. And what we're going to do each week is look at one or more passages in the Bible that describe a certain characteristic of God. Or maybe zero in on a particular name of God that describes his characteristics. That's where we're going. Today we'll begin with the characteristic of his holiness. 
if you were really worshiping using the songs as a way to enter into the praise and worship of our God, you'll notice the repeated theme and the selection of the songs today with all of the emphasis on the holiness of God. But even before we can look at this first characteristic of God, we have to talk a little bit about God and his character in general. Let's begin by just agreeing that God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, Jesus said in John chapter 4. Well, what does it mean that God is a spirit. Well, it means one thing, you and I can't see spirits. Jesus came in flesh so we could actually see God in human flesh. But God the Father is a spirit, and the only way anybody's ever been able to see him at all is if he took on some kind of a form, like for Moses it was a burning bush, at other times it was an angelic being, at other times some great marvelous light, and people, oh, there's God. Well, it was really not God, he's a spirit. It was a representation of God. It's the only way you can see him, because he's a spirit. We know this God because of his book revealing to us certain characteristics, or we might call them attributes of God. Depending who you talk to, it's going to come in somewhere around 15 attributes of God that are mentioned in the Bible. And some of those, interesting, interestingly, are called communicable don't be afraid of the word, sort of like communicable disease, you know, like the virus, it's communicable, it can be passed. Some of his attributes are communicable. You can become like God is a God of love. You can become more loving, so you can kind of catch it. God is a God who is just. Oh, you can be just and get more just and correctly just and righteous. And uh, yeah, those are communicable attributes. You can become more like God in those ways. But there's some incommunicable attributes you just can't do it things like the fact that he is self-existence he always was he always is he always will be you had a beginning he doesn't he didn't need a mommy and a daddy to put a sperm and an egg together to make him he's God he exists because he's God you can't approach that that's incommunicable his self-existence the fact that he is everywhere present you're just not going to get there some of you wish you could be in two places at one time god's everywhere at one time it's an incommunicable attribute that we're just not going to ever be able to achieve now having said the fact that he's a spirit he's got certain characteristics some of which we can be like him a little more and some of which we can't this is our god that we serve Let's take a look at the first characteristic, the first attribute of God, his holiness. Let's begin with some general statements about the holiness of God. Actually, our service this morning, we opened it with Psalm 99, which is exactly where I'm going at this point, a little bit further than what we read. Psalm 99, verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship him at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy there it is a point blank statement that it's easy when you're reading the bible oh i know yeah of course he's holy of course and you just read right on well wait a minute let's not read too quickly the word means to cut or to mark off it has the idea of being he is separate and distinct from all others theologians will either talk will even talk about 
the holy otherness of God, if you would. He is completely holy at a whole different level than you and I can even imagine. He is very different from the rest of us. We can approach some of the holiness and be better people, but he is totally, absolutely holy. The sum total of moral excellence is found in God. If you want to draw a bullseye of holiness, it's God. It's not that he measures up to all standards of holiness. It's that he is the standard of holiness. Which is why we say God is holy. He is totally flawless, sinless, without error, infinitely holy. We call him our holy God. Exodus chapter 15, verses 11 and 12 say, Who among the gods is like you? O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows them up. What? Swallows who up? The other gods. Now, most of us wouldn't think of there being a lot of gods in our culture, but frankly, there are. There's gods all over the place, things that people put as number one in their lives, and they worship them, whether it's stuff or relationships or power, material, whatever. What this verse is saying, our God is majestically holy, awesome in glory, working wonders, and when he stretches out his right hand, the earth just swallows, all, swallows up all the other gods. Sort of like the old Pac-Man, you know, just eating up the dots. That may seem like a very strange comparison, but it's really not. Think a little further. Do you remember back when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and he performed a series of miracles, and one of the miracles was he took his staff and he threw it down, it became a serpent, and the Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. They threw their staffs down, and... Their staffs became snakes also, demonic power of some kind. But Moses' staff snake ate up the other ones. He swallowed them. The holiness of your God is so great that there is nothing that has a draw on your life that can possibly measure up to the greatness of our God. He devours all others. Nothing can match him. No other God is at his level. Psalm 111 verse 9 says, Holy and awesome is his name. This is why we call him our holy God. Holiness is actually part of his name. Do you remember when Jesus was asked by his disciples? His disciples knew Jesus was a great prayer warrior. And so they said, Lord, teach us to pray as you pray. So Jesus taught them by using a model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. You know how it begins. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, right? After addressing him, what's the first request he makes? Hallowed be your name. Hallowed is the idea of holiness set apart. Set apart is your name. There's something about a holy God, and Psalm 111 says, holy and awesome is his name. When you move into your own prayer life and you pray to a holy God, 
Are you fully captivated by him or do you find that your mind can wander? For those who would take the name of the Lord our God, the holy name of the Lord our God in vain, breaking the third commandment, does it begin to make sense to you why God says, do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain? It's a holy name. Exceptional holiness, an other holiness beyond anything we can imagine. The holiness of God is such an amazing study, and many theologians, not all, but many of them believe that this characteristic of God is probably the summary characteristics and all the other ones sort of flow out of this. Now, you have to be careful how you say these things because God is perfectly balanced in his characteristics and all of that, but if there is one characteristic that really sticks out, it is probably this characteristic of his holiness. It encompasses all of the other ones. This is why our world does not get our God, because if you ask the average person in our world today what our God is like, what are they going to say? God is what? Love. You see, they're focusing on a God who is a God of love, and we're focusing as his primary situation, holiness. Now, true holiness will always result in appropriate and beautiful love. But our culture has seen the love without understanding how it radiates from the holiness of God. You see that? That's a very important distinction for us. Our world does not understand our God. The world cannot understand a holy God. Let me say it this way. When our world thinks about a place for unbelievers to go called hell, they bristle at that idea because God is love. For them, you see, if they were God, they would never create a hell. This is, this is because they do not understand the holiness of our God. Holiness moves to another whole level that for a person with a sin nature, it's hard for us to get this. Hard to understand it. But it's powerful. It's compelling. Perhaps some of us would, if we were God, we would create a hell. But even for the worst of humanity, after they were punished for many, many years for what they did wrong, eventually we would say, well, they wouldn't be punished forever and ever. We would simply annihilate them. But in the holiness of God, he calls for an eternal punishment. Are you starting to see where his holiness is at a whole different level than what we understand? And why our world misunderstands this God. And when something bad happens, they can't reconcile it with a God of love. It doesn't make sense to them. Now, we've taken a little time and we've underscored the general principles that he's holy. Now, what I would like to do is shift our attention, and this always helps us, let's have an illustration of his holiness. Let's actually look at a passage where his holiness is illustrated, and I've selected Isaiah chapter 6. The opening four verses, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, so he is, somehow he sees a vision of heaven. He sees the Lord on a throne, high and exalted, 
the train of his very robe fills the entire temple of heaven. So you think of a bride with a train on her gown and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. The train of the gown of our Lord fills the entire temple of heaven. It is a glorious situation. And there above him were the seraphim and they're calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple just shake. And the place is filled with smoke. Wow, there's an awful lot that can be observed here. First of all, what we see is that Isaiah is actually observing the holiness of God. In the temple of God in heaven. And he hears the proclamation of the angelic beings, uh, the seraphim, and, and he hears them actually praising God for his holiness. Now again, I want to underscore that many theologians think that holiness is probably the summary attribute of God. Would you notice how here in heaven they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are not saying, love, love, love is the, holy, is, is the Lord God Almighty. Or eternal, eternal, eternal is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Some people are really into the book of Revelation. Uh, flash for, forward 2,600 years after the time of Isaiah. At least 2,600, maybe more. John is transported to heaven. And in Revelation chapter 4, John sees the four living creatures with six wings covered with all kinds of eyes and so on around the throne of God. And day and night they are always saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're still saying it 2,600 years later. This is an illustration of the holiness of our God. It is the one attribute of which he is constantly praised day and night. And apparently it continues forever. Would you notice the reaction of Isaiah to this section? Starting in verse 5 of Isaiah 6, Isaiah responds after he, he's, he's, he's seen the holiness of God and after he's experienced the, the, what the angelic beings are saying, holy, 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 and after he's felt the shaking of the temple and Woe is me, he cries, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Pause there for a moment in this passage. You might recall verse 1 saying, in the year the King Uzziah died, we know when that was. We know historically when that was. 739 BC. I suppose the more important thing is to remember who King Uzziah was. He was a pretty good king. He did a number of good things, but unfortunately, he wasn't completely good. He allowed idol worship to go on in the land. And at one point, he was thinking he was doing a pretty good job, and he decided rather than calling on a priest, he decided to offer incense to the Lord in worship. And in the holiness of God, God struck him down with leprosy. The year that Uzziah died, Isaiah has his vision. This is chapter 6 of Isaiah. 
the previous chapter, Isaiah knows there have been various judgments called for against the nation of Israel because of their idolatry, their worship of false idols. And when Uzziah is gone, Isaiah now sees himself as God's spokesman and is speaking the prophecies of judgment to come. And all of a sudden, Isaiah sees the holiness of God in the temple of heaven. And he responds by saying, oh, I am so unworthy. He is as much as saying, you know, I'm going to be vaporized. I'm dead me here. This is the man of God, the spokesman of God. And what does he say? He says, he talks about being a man of unclean lips. This is the one thing that a preacher or a prophet should have clean, their lips. But standing in the midst of a holy God, he realizes how even his very clean lips, speaking for God, he is unclean. He sees the seraphim flying back and forth. And one of the seraphim takes a live coal and takes with tongs from the altar of God and touches Isaiah's mouth. There's a burning, there's a purifying going on here. You see, when you step into the presence of God, no matter how good you might think you are, there's a reality that you experience that you are a sinful being. He is so holy that you can't help but see your sinfulness. Until you see the holiness of your God, you will never see the depths of your own sin. And when you see the depths of your own sin because of the holiness of God, you will not be looking at other people's sins. You'll be looking at your own. There is too much shallowness in Christianity today when it comes to worship and prayer. God is seen as the buddy upstairs or the one I run to when I have a problem and he will solve my problems. A good vision of the holiness of God would be very healthy for us today. You will know when you are really in touch with the holy God of the scriptures because you will be broken and you will see your problem with sin. When David went through his period of sin with adultery and murder, he came to a point of repentance in Psalm 51 and he said, God desires a broken and a contrite heart. David saw it. There's a lot of different people today in our world that claim that they have seen God. I never talk about this too much when I hear people, oh, I had a vision of God. And then they go on and tell you of all the exciting things that they saw and what they're supposed to do. Rarely do I ever hear somebody talking about how taken back they were with the holiness of God. How blown away they were at their sinfulness and the brokenness of their heart before God. When you see God, that's the response. When Moses bumped into an image of a burning bush that God was in the midst of the burning bush, 
he was told to take his shoes off because he was on holy ground. When Yuza tried to steady the ark that they were bringing back to Jerusalem, they were bringing it back the wrong way, God struck him dead. This concept of the fear of God is something that is quite foreign to many Christians today. Continuing on in Isaiah 6, the very next verse says, And when I heard the voice of God saying, Whom will I send with the message that I have? Who will go for me? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me! There's something about seeing God, understanding your sinfulness, and just saying, I want to be part of something so much bigger than myself and my little world. Send me, God. You're big enough. Use me somehow. I can't begin to measure up, but use me. This, this vision of God dramatically changed the course of Isaiah's life. And it would be true for all of us. When you see God for who he really is, you will love him. And when you love him, you will serve him and obey him. By the way, again, I emphasize that this is a communicable characteristic of God. And he calls you to also be holy. Now, you'll never be at the level of holiness that he is in this life, but. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, says, And he, God, chose us in him before even the creation of the world to be holy, blameless in his sight. In fact, when you study the doctrines of salvation in Scripture, you realize that you begin to understand that when you become a believer in Jesus, there's a work that goes on for the rest of your life making you more and more like him. We call it sanctification. But there's a position that is imputed to you. There's a righteousness that is imputed to your life. And you before God appear holy. That's why the Bible calls you a saint. I know some branches of Christianity talk about their dead ones and they go through certain standards and then they become a saint. But guess what? You're the saints of God, positionally before him. You're called to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all, of you, in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Old Testament, Leviticus 11, God says, be holy, because I'm holy. Leviticus 19, be holy, because I'm holy. Leviticus 20, be holy, because I'm holy. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. You're a child of God, be holy. None of this Oh, I trusted Christ as Savior, and I'll now live my life out. You know, I'm okay. I was smart enough to make the decision to get my sins forgiven so I can go to heaven. I think what we've got today is a lot of people that actually trusted in making a profession of faith. They did it the right way. They prayed the prayer. They got their insurance from hell. They are trusting in a decision that they made, but they are not trusting in a holy God to graciously forgive their sin. They don't know, but they're not even believers. Friends, we are not believers because we have made a profession of faith. We are not believers because we walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, raised a hand, whatever. 
We are believers because by the grace and mercy of God, he forgave our sins. It had nothing to do with you being smart enough to make that decision. You don't earn your salvation. He is a holy God. So for the rest of our lives, once we have trusted him, we just don't go on doing our own thing and living the way we want to because we are now the children of God, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and the way that you live. You do not belong to yourself. Christ bought you when he gave his life on that cross for you. You belong to God and you are called by a holy God to be holy. Well, when you study the holiness of God, there's something that's quite terrifying about it. There's something mysterious about it. But I would say that that's only one side of holiness. It's as though holiness has two sides to a coin. And I want to try to describe these two sides to you right now. Um, as I wrap this up today, there is a harder side. It is the side of fear, of trembling. Uh, for example, Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear you, O God, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. This should scare the daylights out of us. His holiness is such a higher level, an other holiness than we can imagine. Absolute perfection. It's an amazing thing. Some people, when they study the Old Testament, they get very concerned about God wiping out certain people. For example, after the sins of the sons of Korah, the earth opened up and swallowed them, and they were gone. Really? God judged them? Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead before God for telling lies. How could God do that? It's a lack of understanding of the holiness of God. And there's something here that is really quite scary. The question is not so much why he judged them. The question is really why does he let any of us live in light of his holiness? That is the harder side of holiness. Now let's go to the softer side for just a moment. Time won't allow lengthy studies of this. In fact, I'm convinced that this study of the holiness of God could be a whole series in and of itself. But let's just explore the softer side of the holiness of God for a moment. Remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem? Uh, so he makes arrangements and they put the ark on a card and they're going to pull it back to Jerusalem and they're big celebrations and all excited and it's not the way they're supposed to move the ark. We should have read the Old Testament law, how to move it. They did it their way instead of God's way. And so the cart's bumping along and hits a rocky spot and the ark starts to tip. User reaches out his hand to steady it dead on the spot holiness of god it's terrifying that's the hard side but in the same chapter verses 10 and 11 
He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. David was not. He said, I'm not moving this ark. I've lost one guy already. You know, just leave it here where it is. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. It would seem that Obed-Edom chose not to move the ark on a cart, which was disobedience. Supposed to put the poles through the side, lift it up, four priests, the whole bit, you know, carry it. The ark remains at Obed-Edom's house. Obed-Edom was a follower of God. And he was blessed. The presence of a holy God isn't just something to terrorize your life. You walk in his ways, the holy God blesses. Some of you are, have really enjoyed the Chronicles of Narnia and the first section of that, you know, the wardrobe book where the kids going through the back of the wardrobe into the other world and all of that. And some of you know the story, the lion in the story, Aslan, is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. When C.S. Lewis wrote it, he knew what he was writing and how the lion would eventually die and then be resurrected. The whole bit, it's there. The little girl, Lucy, when she meets Aslan, she reflects later about his paws. They are terrifying! Big claws at any moments could come out of the paw and rip you to shreds. But she also says, but the paws are also soft. C.S. Lewis understood something of the holiness of God being hard, tough, terrorizing, but at the same time, soft. There really is grace and mercy in a holy God who knows we cannot live at his level. He knows that. So we've seen some of the general principles of holiness and talked a little bit about the illustration from Isaiah 6, about Isaiah actually seeing the imagery of the holiness of God in the temple. And we've talked about the harder sides and soft sides of holiness. One thing is very, very clear. A clear understanding of the holiness of God will definitely lead you towards repentance, confession, turning from sin. This morning, as you've reflected with me in getting to know our God a little bit better, the God whom we serve, and you've reflected on this attribute, this characteristic of holiness, is there something you need to come to him with and say, I am unclean. Viewing this holy God, has it shown you areas of life that he wants to claim? and turn toward holiness. Would you bow with me, please? Would you take a moment to let the Spirit of God search your heart? If there is confession and repentance, go there. Turning of sin, be sure you go there. All of us will one day meet this holy God We want to make sure that we are trusting him and his graces and mercies to forgive our sins.
It's not because you or I make a decision we're smart enough to do it. It's that Jesus took the punishment for our sin on that cross. And in the holiness of God, our Father, our Heavenly Father, punished His Son for you and me so that we could become the holy children of God. Father, would you hear our cries today? Our cries to you, our holy God, we do want to serve you. We are unclean people. Our very best falls so far short of your perfect holiness. We stand in awe that you would even love us. And yet in your grace and mercy, you send your son to be punished for our sins. Thank you for this great plan of salvation. And may we live in brokenness before you, not pride, thinking we are smarter or better or our understanding of some subject is greater than others. May we walk in humility before you, our great, holy, almighty God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.